0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. In 2006, a developer began to purchase basically almost an entire city block in the Seattle metropolitan area. And they did this because their plan was to build this enormous shopping mall. And everything was going according to plan until they ran into Edith Macefield. She was an 85-year-old woman who refused to sell her almost over100-year-old house. The developers, at first, actually, for this tiny little home. Offered her $750,000. And she refused the offer. And so they upped it to $1 million. And Edith basically told the developer, It doesn't matter how much money you offer me for my home, I'm never gonna sell it at any price. Because she loved her home. She purchased it in 1952. It was the house where her mother passed away. She was actually, around that time, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she said, and it's also the home where I want to pass away. Well, the developer basically failed every single attempt to get Edith to sell her home. And so with no other options, they did something crazy. They built the mall around her house. (laughs) And so it's just insane, this block-sized shopping mall with this little indentation where they've built around this tiny little 1,000-square-foot home. Edith got her wish. In 2008, she died in the house that she loved. And what's so fascinating is that People came from all over the world to see this home and take pictures in front of it. A Seattle music festival was named in her honor. In fact, quite a few people even got tattoos with the image of her home on their bodies. And the question is this, why did Edith's story strike such a deep chord with so many people? I think it's because of this. In an unstable world that is always changing, I think the truth is we all long to find a place to call home where we could be rooted and secure. That's why Edith became a hero to so many people. She fought for the home that she loved and passed away in it. Last Sunday, I began this brief three-part series called Homesick exploring our longing for a place to call home, and how the gospel speaks to this need of every human heart. And in that first message, I referenced this interesting Welsh word, heriath, which means a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return, a home which maybe never was, the nostalgia, the yearning, the grief for the lost places of the past. It's strange that we can experience a nostalgia, a homesickness for a home that we may have never actually even known. And that's because all of us have this hope for a place called home where we are fully known and fully accepted, even if we've never actually experienced that level of security and comfort before. Genesis tells us that when God created the world, he created it to be a true home for his people because in that garden, he provided everything that we would need to live a life of flourishing, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. As I commented last week, Adam and Eve, we're told were naked and unashamed, fully known and fully accepted. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden fruit, sin entered creation. Honesty and vulnerability were replaced with hiding and shame. Security gave way to fear. Acceptance and love were replaced by attack and blame shifting. And that is why our ultimate homesickness for this home that we long for is something that the truth is none of us have actually experienced in its fullness. Because that homesickness, that cosmic homesickness is ultimately nothing less than a longing for the garden of being fully known and fully accepted. Tim Keller has this famous quote and he says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. In other words, this is not genuine love, but it is a love that is based on not our true selves, But what we reveal, choose to reveal to others, our false self, a carefully curated image of ourselves that we think will be acceptable to others. But then Keller goes on and he says, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. In other words, we take the risk. We reveal who we truly are on the inside and we get rejected for it, confirming Our greatest fear that no one could accept us if they really knew the truth about us. And so Keller concludes But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything, it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Fully known. And fully loved. That is the love that God offers us through Jesus' death on the cross. This is the gospel. Well, that's a bit of a review of what we covered last week. And I'm gonna apply these ideas of our homesickness and a longing for home to the gift that God gives us in the church. And I want to start by arguing that it is only when we truly believe what the Bible says about God's love for us that we can truly find our way back home to God. Henry Nouwen says this, God's love for me was limited by my fear of God's power. And it seemed wise to keep a careful distance, even though the desire for closeness was immense. I know that I share this experience with countless others. I have seen how the fear of becoming subject to God's revenge and punishment has paralyzed the mental and emotional lives of many people. This paralyzing fear of God is one of the great human tragedies. And so in countless ways throughout the pages of the Bible, God is declaring a message to us that he loves us, that he is for us, that he offers us forgiveness in the face of our sin and mercy in the face of our stubbornness and rebellion. And the story that we find in the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter, the prodigal son is one of Jesus' most famous stories to illustrate this love of God for us. And what's interesting to me, is that this story of the prodigal son is the story of a homesick child who finds his way back to the home that he left. And it's the story of a father who has two sons. The younger son does the unthinkable, demanding his share of the inheritance before his father is even dead. And he takes that money and he heads off to what we're told is a distant country where he squanders it in wild living until a famine hits the land. And desperate and out of money, this younger son finds himself feeding unclean pigs for a living and wishing to eat the pods that he is feeding the swine. The younger son has destroyed any hope of reconciliation with his father. He has essentially wished his father dead by demanding his inheritance while the father was still alive. And then he squanders that money on wild living, and now he has defiled himself with unclean animals. And through this younger son, Jesus is painting the picture of a person that is utterly irredeemable. It's beyond the pale what he has done. Even the remotest hope of returning home as a son is destroyed. And so he hatches an alternate plan. In Luke 15, verse 17 to 24, it reads, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, through this story of the prodigal son, Jesus exceeds our greatest hopes of what God is like that God is a God of love and mercy. Old Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, commenting on this particular detail of the father running to the son, writes this. The father breaks the mold of Middle Eastern patriarchy. He takes the bottom edge of his long robes in his hand and runs to welcome his pig-herding son." He falls on his neck and kisses him before before hearing his prepared speech. The father does not demonstrate love in response to his son's confession. Rather, out of his own compassion, he empties himself, assumes the form of a servant, and runs to reconcile his estranged son. Traditional, Traditional Middle Easterners Wearing long robes, do not run in public. To do so is deeply humiliating. This father runs. Rather than experiencing the ruthless hostility he deserves and anticipates, the son witnesses an unexpected, visible demonstration of love in humiliation an interesting detail that Bailey brings out is that Middle Eastern men never run in public. It's highly embarrassing. Adults don't run. Men do not run. But in this story, Jesus says, the father runs. The father runs like a child to his child to rescue him. In depicting the humiliation of the father running to his son, Jesus was foreshadowing his own humiliation that he would experience on the cross as he would take our guilt and shame on himself. And as moving as the embarrassment of an elderly man running like a child may be, it doesn't do justice to the humiliation that Jesus experienced on the cross. The reason why God can be approached without fear is because of what Christ bore on our behalf. The punishment that we deserve for our sins on his own body. And here's the thing. It would be great if this is how the story ended. With this moving homecoming and a reunion between an estranged father and his son. I mean, what a perfect ending scene for the movie right father and son hugging one another in a tearful yet manly embrace curtains fall cue the music and the credits but that's not how the story ends because in this family the father has two sons And that's what will cause a whole host of other problems even after this joyful reunion. In other words, I think the more pressing question that Jesus is asking of us by telling the story of the prodigal son is this. How does this shattered family become a loving family again after the prodigal? comes home. This is one of the undeniable main points that Jesus is trying to drive through this story if you understand his audience. The first point in this that I want to make is this. Through the church, God provides every believer with a new family, a new home. That's why throughout the New Testament, family titles like brother and sister are used to describe the relationships that we have with one another in Christ. And before I kind of drive to the main point of why I'm sharing all this, I do want to make one side point, and it is this. Especially here at ICC, I think this is a very needed message because of the season of life that many of us find ourselves in. The truth about our church is that we're probably a 90% family church. And the typical demographic at ICC is a family that's parents in their mid 30s into the 40s with a couple kids in tow. And I worry that, particularly in the season of life that many of us find ourselves in, we have become utterly consumed by our families. And I worry that out of that, many of us have become too isolated because of the demands of family life. So that in essence, what we have done is we have pulled away from other meaningful relationships in our life because we're investing in our families. And I think what the Bible teaches us is this. We need deep and meaningful relationships beyond our families. We, in other words, cannot truly flourish as God intended us to without those relationships in our life. And the truth is, even as I look at our church, I know many of us have pretty much abandoned any serious friendships that we once had for the sake of our families. So that we find ourselves in a pretty lonely place. Jen Pollock Michelle writes this, the church must bear witness to bonds of human love and loyalty that exist outside of the marriage covenant, to a home that exists outside of the nuclear family. The nuclear family cannot bear the full weight of human hope and expectation, struggle and need. It's too fragile and human an entity. As a married woman with children, I need relational connection and commitment beyond the circle of my immediate family, both for myself as well as for the sake of my family. It is not easy to stretch across the demographic differences of our lives and make a go at community. But this is part of the church's housekeeping. If home is God's welcome, then each of us must work to make sure everyone belongs. God has a home, and he is looking to share it. As the psalmist describes him, he is, quote, father of the fatherless and protector of widows. And I would add to what we just read here that hearing that quote, I suspect, could stir some pretty strong emotions in some of you because of the way that some of you may feel about how the church has failed you. And I think it is, especially when we talk about ideals like this, like what the church ought to be, so easy to play the victim and to basically use quotes like this to hurl attacks at the church and judge others. But I'm going to say this, and I know it may sound a bit insensitive, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here, is that we will be a part of the problem and not a part of the solution until we first see ourselves as the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. As Christ intended us to identify with this story. The story goes on in verse 25 to 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Let me ask you, what is at the core of this older brother's struggle? I would argue this. He couldn't accept his younger brother back home like his father could because he couldn't understand his own father's love for him. And so all that flows out of his mouth is anger and complaint all these years I have slaved for you, and not one thank you from your lips. But despite this older brother's protests, when you look objectively at this story, it's undeniable that this father loves both sons equally. In fact, once he finds out that his older son has returned home from the field, he leaves the party and pursues that older son and goes out of the banquet hall and literally begs him to come and join the celebration. There is no anger. There is no rebuke in the heart of the father. The same gentleness and love that he showed to the younger brother, he now shows to this rebellious and stubborn older brother as well. To the father, both sons are the same. He loves them equally. But the older brother cannot see it. He cannot acknowledge it. Because all he can do is compare what he's been given with what his brother has. I think a good way to describe the older brother is this. He is like a person surrounded by food, but starving to death he is like a person surrounded by a feast and literally starving to death because he, in his jealousy and anger against his younger brother, cannot see his father's love for him. And so what I would say is this, we cannot love others and make a welcoming home for them in the church until we truly understand God's love for us. And the truth is this, I as well as every one of you in this room resemble the heart of that older brother far more than we can acknowledge or own up to. I want to say that I think for many of us, a cloud hangs in our heart against many in the church that makes it very hard for us to love and accept them in the same way that God loves and accepts them. So many people that we judge. So many people that we think we're better than and look down on. And I think this is that many of us, like this older brother, operate from a spirit of poverty rather than understanding the generosity of the God who has poured so much love on us. Why wasn't I invited to that gathering that everyone's posting about on social media? Why wasn't I asked to lead that team? I could do a better job than him. What did the leader see in her? I don't get it. Why aren't I being recognized for all the things that I do when everyone else seems to be getting praise? What about me? Henry Nouwen writes this. In a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful. It is not easy to really believe in a love that does not do the same. When I hear someone praised, it is hard not to think of myself as less praiseworthy. When I read about the goodness and kindness of other people, it is hard not to wonder whether I myself am as good and kind as they and when I see trophies, rewards, and prizes being handed out to special people, I cannot avoid asking myself why, didn't, why that didn't happen to me. The world in which I have grown up is a world so full of grades, scores, and statistics that consciously or unconsciously, I always try to take my measure against all the others. Much sadness and gladness in my life flows directly from my comparing. And most, if not all, of this comparing is useless and a terrible waste of time and energy. This older brother was so consumed with jealousy at the love that his father was showing that he was utterly blind to the love that he himself was receiving from God. And so he hated his brother and could not receive him back home like his father could. And I am inviting you this morning as we worship to reflect on that in your own heart. Who are the people in your life that you have judged and driven away as unworthy of your love? Who are the people that secretly in your heart you think less of because of what they may have done to you? The last point I will make and we'll start to wrap up here is this. Is that God's love should not only save us, but ought to transform us. I think that's one of the main messages of the story of the prodigal son and why Jesus tells it. His whole point is that he who is forgiven must now become the one who forgives. The one who has been welcomed home with compassion and mercy must now welcome others into that same household with the same heart that the God of heaven has shown to us. The one so, is so loved generously must now love his brother and sister in Christ with the same generous love. Again, Nouwen writes this, Here lies hidden the great call to conversion, to look not with the eyes of my own low self-esteem, but with the eyes of God's love, As long as I keep looking at God as a father who wants to get the most out of me for the least cost, I cannot but become jealous, bitter, and resentful toward my brothers and sisters. But if I am able to look at the world with the eyes of God's love and discover that God's vision is not that of stereotypical patriarch, but rather that of an all-giving and forgiving father who does not measure out his love to his children according to how well they behave, then I quickly see that my only true response can be deep gratitude. As children of the darkness that rules through fear, self-interest, greed, and power, our great motivators are survival and self-preservation. But as children of the light who know that perfect love casts out all fear, it becomes possible to give away all that we have for others. That Is the picture of the Christian life. Forgiven so that we can forgive. Loved so that we can love. Listen, some of the grievances that you have against others is real, it's valid. But I think what Jesus is asking is this Can you nevertheless forgive them as you have been forgiven? And not like forgive them, meaning I forgive you, and then there forever will hang a cloud between us, and you are indebted to me because of what you have done. But to freely give that forgiveness and not hold them in your debt. When you see the brokenness and sin of others, rather than judging them and gossiping about them, even when it's shrouded in a lot of spiritual language. Can you actually grieve that sin secretly and pray for them when you're praying for the very person who has offended you and hurt you? Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, 32 to 36, if you love those who love you, Then your reward will be great, and here's the key, and you will be children of the Most High. And he's saying, you're going to be part of this family, this spiritual family, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This message weighs very heavy on my heart. Because I feel like right now we're in a season of our church where I'm hearing a lot of chatter in our community of the grievances that people have against me, against others, and the dissatisfaction that that has resulted in. And when I hear them, I, I don't know what to say. It's valid. I am not a perfect pastor. I make mistakes. And we are not a perfect church. But the only way that we're going to survive as a community is if we understand that we are a community that is founded on the love of God. Each of us receiving this love and being called to give that love to one another. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Has some of the hurt that you've experienced by being a part of this community or the things that you find lacking or the areas where you felt your expectations were not being met being responded to with gossip or taking cheap shots at people or whatever else it may be. Now, listen, I understand that this can seem very heavy-handed and basically it can sound like I'm trying to silence dissent in the congregation. And please don't misunderstand me, okay? Where there is genuine need to discuss some problems we're experiencing, let it be spoken and let us work toward that healing and growth as a community. But I wonder if under the foundation of all of that, what we can say is we are being obedient to what Christ says. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Amen? And that's the only way we are going to become the family of God. As God's children, in other words, what Jesus is saying, is there ought to be a family resemblance with the same kind of love that our Father Displays to every one of us here in this room. Let us share that with one another. Let's pray. We're going to have a song of response here before we actually come to the Lord's table and take communion together. And can I just invite you to just reflect on what's been shared with you right now? Can I ask you, in all honesty, can you identify? with the spirit of the older brother. And can you understand that spirit of poverty that is inside every one of us as we maybe look at others, maybe not with a merciful heart, but with more of a judgmental heart. In other words, how do we build a healthy, loving family out of a shattered family filled with so many prodigals. The only way that we can do that is when we first soak in the love of God ourselves and understand how much the merciful love of God is given to us. And so could I invite you to maybe just spend a few moments in prayer, maybe even in repentance, if there have been some people in your heart that you've been harboring a secret grudge or judging with a spirit of self-righteousness, And maybe you can say, God, who am I? Who am I to judge this person and throw stones at them? All I am is a child of mercy, a child of love. And so, God, do that inner work in my heart so that when I see my brother and sister in Christ, all I can see is a fellow sinner in need of that same mercy, and that I can embody that mercy to them. Would you just pray that for a few minutes in our worship team? will lead us in a song, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. It's really a remarkable thing that God does, taking a shattered family filled with sinners and turning us into a community of people who can actually love one another. And um, you know, It's such a fascinating dynamic that I see in the story of the prodigal son between these two brothers. You know, it's like the, it's like the um, older brother looking at the younger one and saying, you never should have left. And the younger brother looking at the older brother said, you should be nicer to me <laughs> now that I've come home. And it's like a Mexican standoff, right? Like no one's backing down here. Uh, and yet the father would say, I love you both. I love you both with this unending love that I wish you could have for each other. You know, I think quite often when we have communion at ICC, um, I don't know, I, I think we get all very uh, wrapped up and self-absorbed in this sort of introspection, you know? each of I, I can see it in your expressions. Each of us sort of cocoon in our own thoughts of, oh, am I ready and worthy to receive this table? But I think we forget a vital element of this table, which is that this is a communal experience, It's supposed to be about family. It's supposed to be about us taking this together. And so as you take communion today, can I actually invite you to sort of resist that instinct to become so self-absorbed in your own inner thoughts and actually um, look around the room and enjoy one another and say, wow, you know, we in this act of taking this bread and taking this cup together are expressing all of our needs for the mercy of God, and I'm taking it in this room with the people I love, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's interesting, when Jesus gathered the disciples in that upper room, he said, "I have eagerly desired to take this meal with you." And I understand that heart that Christ is expressing, because there's no one else in this world that I'd rather take communion with than the people that are in this room. And so it is a real joy to be able to come to the Lord's table as a family and take this together. I pray that that's the spirit with which we would receive the bread and receive the cup. And so as the ushers direct you, would you come forward and take a piece of the bread and then take a cup and return to your seats and you could just keep praying or singing the song that the worship team will lead us in. And then when everyone has received the elements, we will all take it together as a family. Come receive the Lord's table.